Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. This week, I'm speaking to Adam Higgins, co-founder of Manchester Developer Capital and Centric, the creators of Campus, which won a Pineapple Award as a place in progress. Tom Bloxham from Urban Splash visited the place as part of our judging and described it as feeling like Manchester. So Adam and I talk about why they chose to refurbish its 1960s concrete security cabin on stilts, the barriers they faced in creating a mature landscape with large trees, and how they went about making a place that felt in the spirit of their home city. But first, I want to share that this podcast has been sponsored by IE University's School of Architecture and Design. And here's a quick word from the Dean of IE School of Architecture and Design, Martha Thorne. At the end of the podcast, Martha's going to come back to tell you a bit more about their online global master's in real estate program and their scholarships. So do stick around for that. So Martha, tell me about IE School of Architecture Design and why you're keen to partner with the developer. Christine, I think our school and the developer have lots of synergies. I would say, um, first and foremost, the idea of creating sustainable and equitable environments is, is something that we both are very interested in. Our love for the city, the ability to learn from the city and from many places to learn from each other. And then finally, I'd say that you're very entrepreneurial. Um, the developer has an entrepreneurial mindset that's very close to everything we do at IE, even at IE School of Architecture and Design. The ability to see opportunities where other, sees, other people see challenges, I think, is what brings us together. And we have this, of course, in our Global Master in Real Estate Development Program, this entrepreneurial spirit, this holistic look at the city. So it's great to be aligned uh, at IE School of Architecture and Design with the developer. And I really hope that all your listeners will visit us, will learn more about our programs, and especially the Global Master, the part-time program in real estate at IE School of Architecture and Design. Well, my name is Adam Higgins, and I'm the co-founder of a Manchester-based uh, development company called Capital and Centric. Um, we see ourselves really as uh, social impact developers in the sense that we're not really just about building buildings for building buildings' sake, because it kind of stacks up on a spreadsheet. Really, we're trying to do something that has a positive impact on the, the local environment or the village or the town or the city that we're, that we're operating in. So it's not really just about the bricks and mortar for us. So tell me a little bit, and you're coming up to 10 years um, of, of being in business. Tell me a little bit about what you did before and how uh, Capital and Centric came to be. Well, I, I've been doing development frighteningly now for nearly 30 years. So um, I originally uh, had a job at Peel Holdings, which is a, a very large Manchester-based development company, and then Ask Developments, another Manchester-based development company. And then I joined forces with a guy called Tim Heatley, um, who'd also been a developer in Manchester, actually, and we joined forces at the beginning of 2011, so about 
10 years ago, um, really with this intention of setting up a development company, really when there was very little development going on. So most of the other big developers in and around the UK were really sort of laden down with, with debt from the credit crunch and were unable really to do much fresh development because really they were dealing with the legacies that had been created you know, in the 2007-2008 crash. So we felt we were quite fortunate because we were setting up a new company. We didn't have any of those sort of hangovers or headaches from the recession. Everything we were doing was because we wanted to do it because we felt like it would be a good thing to do as opposed to kind of deal with the, dealing with the problems that we created like with most of the development companies. So for us, it was great. It was quite a kind of fresh time for us uh, to be starting a company. So you you described yourself as a social a social impact developer. Social impact is kind of a newer term that we're using. But when you started out, did you did you have those words, or what was it? What was your ambition to do differently? I think when we started it in 2011, I think our real ambition was to create great architecture, and it was about kind of trying to create award winning architecture. That was really where it was it was kind of coming from initially. And I think the kind of positive social impact was something we sort of stumbled across as we're going through that process, that you realise great architecture is great and it has a, can have a very positive impact, but actually it can also be sort of slightly elitist. So it's brilliant if it happens to be your house or your home or your office block, but it's also about trying to do something really for people who don't necessarily live in that building. So then it became about trying to kind of use what we're trying to do with, with the architecture and the development to try and improve areas in wider areas. So that was got us thinking about public realm and green space um, and really trying to make things inclusive. So we weren't trying to create gated communities. And there's some really good little examples of those that we did at, we, we did early doors, really, um, back, at the, back at the beginning. So we realised that we could kind of try and use what we were doing to have a positive impact, whether that was bringing own occupiers back into city centres or whether it was trying to help with the homeless um, issues that we've got in Manchester and many of the cities. So it, it kind of grew arms and legs, really, and, and that became our main thing almost in the end. One thing that I see as a link through your projects is this um, grappling with different kinds of post-industrial uh, architecture, post-industrial buildings. And uh, I mean, that is a, a different approach. Initially, of course, those were all being torn down in places like Manchester um, from mill buildings all the way through to you know out of town parking. Is that still something you're really interested in? Yeah, well, I mean, it was almost... Um mill buildings now like the old sort of typical manchester red brick mills are very sought after now but of course you've only got to go back probably 30 or 40 years and they were they were all being pulled down because they were perceived to be sort of dirty and ugly and a sign of the past and cities wanted to move forward so a lot of them were pulled down actually and then the same things kind of happened i think with 1960s architecture so you had this sort of brutalist period didn't you sort of post-war in the 50s mainly the 60s and early 70s these buildings that were considered to be kind of quite ugly only really maybe 10 15 years ago that a lot of these things were being pulled out but actually they're almost like the they're almost like the, the the kind of red brick mills of the 60s compared to what was built in the sort of mid 1800s so we've um, quite a few of our projects have kept buildings like that and tried to celebrate them so we, we've got one over in liverpool called tempest it was called um Churchill House um, when it was built in. I think that was sort of late 60s, early 70s, which is a fairly ugly building. And we, we bought it and the intention was really to try and strip it back to the frame and do something with it. But then you realised actually if you do that, you do actually lose the whole essence of what the building was in the first place. So we've kind of cleaned it all up and changed the windows and taken a huge big plant room off the roof and put a, a garden on the, on the roof and actually made it a really desirable building. And it's attracted, I think because of that, it's attracted some really interesting occupiers such as 
architects practices, landscape gardening companies in there, uh, tech businesses have gone in there because it's kind of quite cool now because it's a 60s, got a 60s vibe to it slightly. Um, whereas actually if we built a brand new, you know, city centre office building, glass and steel, all the rest of it, it probably never would have attracted those kind of companies funny enough because they would have shied away from it. So I think all these different eras all have their role to play. Um, and that is something we're still continuing to do even to this day. In fact, a planning application has been validated uh, just this morning, actually, in Stockport, which is, uh, that's some old brick buildings, Weir Mill, which sits underneath this incredible ladder that goes over the, the sort of valley in Stockport from Manchester to Stockport. Um, and that that's and that's saving these beautiful old red brick buildings um, and, and with some new builds, you know, adjacent to it as well. So I think schemes are much more interesting when you've got lots of different types of buildings rather than the whole thing looking like it's been sort of plumped from space, you know, by an architect or by a developer in the middle of someone's town centre. I love that you're using the word ugly quite a lot in the context of uh, the building beautiful, building better, all of these uh, conversations about beauty that have been going on. Uh, what's your reaction to those? Um, this kind of call for beauty and and this idea that there is a an idea of what is beautiful. Well, I think I think for me it's just that. Uh, what people consider to be a beautiful building or ugly building kind of changes over time. So if it's got some sort of architectural merit, I think they probably should be kept. And so one of our philosophies has always been we should try and keep what we can. And at, um, we've got a scheme in Manchester, uh, which won a pineapple award, of course, very recently, um, called Campus. And that's got this funny little 1960s single-storey um, security huts, which we call a bungalow. It's on stilts right next to the Rochdale Canal. And everybody, but everybody, planners and everyone else, including the, the original architect actually, felt that should be demolished because it's just this sort of, it's almost like, um, it's like the size of a shipping container almost, but it's but it's built in the 60s, built concrete on these on these funny little concrete stilts. And But like, I can't imagine there's any other buildings in Manchester that are built on stilts, or I can't think of any other buildings anywhere built on stilts. So we just thought that should be something we, we kind of keep. And if people go to our website, capitalcentric.com website, they'll see a picture of it. But it's just an absolutely fantastic little building. And I honestly think it's one of the coolest buildings on the whole of the campus development, even though it was really built as just like a 60s security cabin for the security guard to presumably sit in and make himself a cup of tea. But that that then becomes a great little space for meanwhile use events and pop-up events and like oh, it's going to become like the village hall really for campus so that's what i mean it's, it's even though ostensibly it's an ugly building actually it's kind of got some beauty about it as well now because we've um we've you know we've refurbished it and we've, we've we've made the thing real sort of focal point for campus i think what's interesting to me is i mean it's a quirky building ugly or beautiful it's a it's a funny little building and it has something to it and i think that's quite interesting to be a developer where you're you're kind of open to a certain quirkiness or or to buildings that have flavor really because you could be going for something generic but what i'm hearing is actually we don't want to do something generic we want to do something um interesting and of the place and and uh, i guess um what do you think on that campus um, structure, though, because you did add some new elements to it, of course. And, you know, in some of these sites, you're saying, OK, we've got that existing. We've got the funny little hut. We're going to decide uh, what we work with, but we also are going to add to it. So how do you approach that relationship between old and new and, and new architecture coming into those places? Well, we also have to look at sort of viability as well. So sometimes it's impossible to keep absolutely everything on a site because you just couldn't you couldn't make it viable. Sometimes um, the, the, the knock-on effect of keeping the old ones would just reduce the overall value and it just means actually nobody can bring it forward. Or 
you're trying to bid for the site, obviously, with other people, and everyone else is bidding more than you. So you could have all you could have the best aspirations in the world to create something incredible, but the reality is you'll never buy the site because someone else is always going to bid more for it. So there is a balance to be had there. And on campus, which was a joint venture between Captain Centric and um, HBD, so we have a 50-50 JV on that, our joint aspirations really were to um, try and get this sort of mix of different things. So we have things like the security hub. We've got an old 1960s, um, it was the business school for Manchester Metropolitan University, actually, um, MMU, um, which is, was a sort of eight, nine uh, story building, 60s building, typical 1960s concrete building. So we've kept that and stripped it back um, but we've kept as much as we can. But we have to have a large element of new build on there as well. And there were a couple of older buildings, 60s kind of polytechnic type buildings that we just couldn't really do anything with because one was an old lecture hall and it was just very difficult to, it was such a bespoke building and we didn't want to do another lecture hall on there, obviously, commercially. So we did we did get rid of that building and we put, um, we put a new 14, 15 storey building on there. But um, that's quite nice in a way because we built it out of this really sort of warm red brick, which matches Manchester very well and is in kind of contrast to the concrete on the, the other buildings we've kept. But we've also created this sort of rooftop village. So we have these sort of quirky little, what we call Dutch houses, um, these pitched roof houses all, all the way um, across all the new build elements of campus. Because campus is quite a big scheme. It's about 530 um, homes. But it just gave it this sort of interesting um uh, interesting flavour and also we wanted to create something that was all you know it's quite a modern thing I suppose but sort of Instagrammable and it is Instagrammable because I often see campus on Instagram where people have taken a picture of the, the bungalow building or they've taken a picture of the Dutch houses and that's kind of what good architecture should be doing I guess if people want to take a picture of it and post it because they feel proud of it in their city so I think creating that kind of civic pride is is very important and architectures and, and also the public realm there is, is a good way of doing that I think when we did the Pineapple Awards, we asked Tom Bloxham to go and have a look and a walk around uh, campus. And one of the things he talked about um, was how it really felt like Manchester. Uh, and it really felt like, you know, it really felt like a place. It didn't feel like a, you know, and it really felt part of the city. And was that an ambition you were setting out to do from the beginning? Did you want it to feel like Manchester? And what does Manchester feel like? Well, yeah, it not something that we wanted to be like Manchester, but we wanted to feel like it, we definitely wanted it to feel like it fitted in and it was almost organic and it didn't look like a brand new development that's just been plonked in the middle there. So there's a great example, I won't, I won't name them, but there's a great example of a building very nearby um, to campus, which was built sort of 10, 15 years ago, which is sort of modern um, and it just, it doesn't add a lot to to the environment in my opinion. Um, because it's just sort of, um, it's kind of modern, but not super cool modern. It's just sort of slightly cheap modern, in my opinion. Whereas I think campus, we wanted to create this thing which is a bit quirky, so we have five different kind of types of buildings on there. So I think it feels like it's been developed organically. But funnily enough, the inspiration wasn't particularly to try and make it look like it was part of Manchester, albeit we wanted it to fit in. The inspiration really was to try and get this kind of Scandi feel to it, and that was... um, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the Pineapple Awards or not, but we, um, Adam Brady and I, Adam Brady's my colleague at um, HBD, our joint venture partner, and we had this idea that because it faces Canal Street uh, in Manchester, which is a very sort of Amsterdam-type feel, because it runs along the canals, it's very sort of vertical-type buildings, all these windows in, a bit like in Amsterdam. And we had this idea that we wanted to create that, but we mistakenly believed Holland was in um, Scandinavia at the time. So we wanted to... Um, we decided we wanted this kind of Scandi feel to the whole thing. And it was only afterwards that we actually realised that actually Holland isn't actually in Scandinavia. So, uh, but we did end up, um, we did end up 
appointed um, a, a Dutch architect called Mekanu, who did have a Manchester office at the time, um, really, because we wanted to just create something a little bit different and a little bit quirkier. And it was working with them, really, that allowed us to come up with this concept of the, all the different types of buildings and the Dutch houses, hence the name for them. Um, but actually, it does also work very well with Manchester because it's got the canal frontage. Some of the existing buildings, which are all listed buildings, are all shipping warehouses, and they used to have the canal barges coming in and unloading coal and cotton and things like that. So it's got a little bit of a sort of Rotterdam type feel to it as well. So that was really where the, all the inspiration came from it. And of course, the wonders of Pinterest enables a developer. Uh, with no architectural training like me to come up with great ideas now to be able to tell the architect how we want it to look. Uh. I um, I know the landscape uh, and that public realm and the kind of greening of it is something that you've got kind of on your billboards and it's something that you talk about. Um, why is that important? And, it, you know, is it, in, is it particularly important to Manchester, which has a reputation for not being a particularly leafy, um, you know, or park, park, parkland city, or is it just something that you want to bring to all of your projects? Um, a bit of both. Um, we had decided some years before, because we'd come across this idea of this rooftop garden at Tempest in Liverpool in the, in the concrete building, we wanted to create a sort of um, garden on the roof which is what we did. And that really developed into Tim and I having this idea really that we should make that a feature of all our schemes going forward. So whether there's space for a garden or whether it's a rooftop thing or whether it's balconies that are green, somehow it's a brief to all our team and all our architects that we have to get greenery somehow in the scheme. <clears throat> so that really led us into terms of what we're going to do at campus. But Manchester has very few sort of green spaces, unlike sort of London or unlike Brighton. It just has very few um, green spaces because it was an industrial city, industrialized city, I suppose, originally when it was developed. So, and then what we've noticed over the years is that a lot of sort of public squares, when, when they are developed in the city, and I think in most cities actually, they tend to be big, functional, multi use type spaces where um, everything's all about kind of quite hard landscaping and hard edges and granite sets, and everything's quite square and rectangular, but with a you know design desire line running right across the middle where people will walk and somewhere suitable for Christmas markets, great, which is brilliant for some of it. But I think if all the spaces become like that, you know, when it's not when it's not December, they can become a bit dull, actually, because they become quite cold spaces in northern. Northern Europe, and you know they, they they stay damp for a long time if the sun's not shining, and they, they don't really make the most of it. So we just had this idea at campus, seeing as we've got the space in the middle, rather than create a public square, which again I think is probably most developers perhaps would do. We just thought, forget forget creating the square, we should create a garden, but it shouldn't be a garden just for um, uh, ju just for people who live there because that doesn't really become very inclusive and it doesn't exactly welcome people into campus. So we wanted it to be a garden that was. Um, available for everybody. So even if you don't live there, you don't even have to live in Manchester, but you can come and sit in there on a Thursday lunchtime while you're having your sandwiches between meetings or whatever you want to do. Um, so that, that that was really the kind of philosophy but why we wanted it to be green and, and red. And we also had this idea, and it was really coming back to this bungalow idea. Again, if you go on, um, you know, well, you see it on Pinterest and on the internet, but you see these old, like abandoned old, like, um, sort of wartime relics in the middle of Poland or somewhere and they're completely overgrown you know like an old I don't know I don't know what they were really like it's some sort of shooting tower or something they're completely overgrown they've been taken over by nature and that was the sort of inspiration really looking at some of those pictures for keeping the bungalow and then trying to get all this um kind of slightly wild landscaping that will grow up the you know grow up the the buildings and buddly are popping out of a gutter whatever it might be but just to make the thing look like it's um 
it, it's slightly overgrown and that that will happen over the next couple of years but we um just to make sure it gets that kind of feel we don't want it to be too perfect is the point really because um, everything gets done down and even trying to specify the trees you've got people like saying you know secured by design none of you plant none of your plants must be over whatever it was 1.4 meters or something it was all these sort of rest- silly restrictions that completely dumbed down what you're trying to create so we've we ignored a lot of that really and just tried to get the biggest plants and the biggest trees and the biggest palm trees actually that we could possibly uh do in there and i think so far it's really worked and they've all survived two winters now which is great as well it's interesting to hear what are the barriers to that so secured by design is one of them but it's interesting to know like what are the blockers that kind of take because i think I, I talk to a lot of people who have this ambition to create really green lush biodiverse space in the city and they kind of end up with some some twigs with loops around them in some you know tree pits so so what are these things that stop us from creating those semi wild you know inner city spaces that in in many ways we want to include I think it's um, it's it's a number of things. I think it's it's often budgets because obviously it costs more to uh, to put bigger trees. And I, some of the trees we put into campus are something like seven meters high, and in a city centre location, that's kind of quite unusual, I would suggest. Because normally they do end up being these sort of two meter little trees with a kind of stick, you know, bit of pine next to it to hold it up, you know, with a strap round, don't they? And they literally take 20 or 30 years to come to any level of maturity. So we just wanted it to have that. And that's no good for us because of course we're trying to rent, it's a it's a built to rent scheme. So we're trying to rent, we're going to be trying to rent these apartments literally in the next couple of months. So we're going to rent the better if we spend a bit more on the landscaping and create create the the, 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 the lush garden from the outset. So, um, but the set they are you know it, it's often it's budget. It's when funds get involved. Often they sort of they say, well, you don't want to have too much landscaping. It's a maintenance obligation. You're going to have to cut the grass. Or you're going to have to have a team of gardeners to, um, to to cut them, and that's expensive, and it'll come off the bottom line on you, you know, your income appraisal. And funny enough. I think often landscape architects do quite like this sort of very clean, open sort of space with perfect granite sets and, you know, all the rest of it. And that was what we were trying to sort of uh, rally against, really. That that was what we were trying to say, well, we don't, yeah, well, we don't want that. So we had to actually push very hard, funny enough, to get the kind of plants and trees um, and, and the density of plants that we wanted to get in there because there's almost like a default, which is that the less you can do, the better. And really interestingly, we... We've got a site elsewhere in Manchester and there's a developer on an adjoining site that we're working with, or we were working with at the time. And they've got the opportunity for a pocket park opposite their front door, which we're all contributing to. And this developer, so this is about two years ago, um, uh, said to us that, uh, that's right, because he, he was saying, I said, well, you know, what are you going to do on the landscaping opposite, you know, opposite your front door? It's a, you know, they've got 350 unit residential scheme. And um, he said, oh, to be honest with you, once we get planning, we're just going to, we'll just put some grass seed down. I said, why, you know, why, why would you do that though? Why, why don't you put some, why don't you, know, you can make a brilliant little park opposite your you, building there. And they said, well, that's not our business plan. I said, but will you not get more money on your rents? Because it was a built to rent scheme. Will you not rent your apartments more if you've got like a really nice garden in front of you, your, your, your building? And they said, well, that's not our business plan. Well, to be honest, that'll cost more money. And I can't understand that because it might cost another £300,000 to do it. But we're talking about £150 million scheme here. The cost of doing it's insignificant. You've probably got to get another £5 a month rent on each of your apartments, and you've probably paid for that 10 times over. So there is this sort of funny thing in property, isn't there, about trying to build everything as cheap as you can, really? 
building and designed by spreadsheet. All the things that add value don't end up on the spreadsheet, but all the things that cost like maintenance. I think this is a conversation we've been having with many landscape architects would say, um, would say the same thing that the benefit of the tree doesn't get, uh, you know, quantified or measured anywhere, but the cost of the tree does. Yeah. It's hard to quantify that thing. So you do have to ultimately take a, take a view and with campus, the fund on that is, is an American company called Ares, and we, we sort of persuaded them that actually we shouldn't dumb down the, the vision that we had. You know, we should absolutely maintain it and, if anything, kind of enhance it. And to be fair to them, they bought into that as well because we want campus to be the best, you know, large-scale built-to-rent scheme in Manchester, possibly even in the UK. Um, and the minute you start sort of dumbing down things like, the, you know, the, the, the public spaces and, and the architecture, it's not that anymore, is it? So even though I can't prove that it'll be worth more as a result of that, I genuinely think it will do because I think it'll be more, it'll be more attractive place to live, which ultimately is what drives the value. Is the shift towards more ESG investing actually going to make a difference to that? Are you seeing, you know, that are those environmental, social, um, and governance, you know, uh, measures actually making a difference, or is this just another kind of spin or accreditation? And actually, um, you know, you're not seeing that kind of. Uh, financial benefit of of greening um i think more and more people are doing the greening on on these things i think um you know you see the cgis of what people are proposing and i think that is happening more and more actually so i do i do think there is a sort of shift to it generally and i think i think the property industry is actually getting more socially responsible um across the board i i, I think there is a sort of sea change over the past few years really in terms of um, industry generally in terms of obviously uh, climate change and all that kind of thing. The challenge is if you go through, if the, if the economy goes through a, a sort of quiet spell, sometimes those things get lost again, don't they? So the challenge is going to be just making sure that all those things remain on the agenda. But I, I think um, I think funds, investment institutions are sort of seeing the benefits of trying to invest in schemes that have some attempt to be um, socially responsible rather than ones that are just built purely for profit. Um, because they tend to be the ones that have been value engineered to death as well and tend to be lower quality in terms of the buildings. So I think if, if a developer's up for spending extra money on these things, probably that goes across the board and everything in the building probably has more longevity. You talked about this quest to collaborate with kind of an adjacent developer. Do you think the red line is is an is an issue in our cities? And planning normally is the one who mediates this kind of boundary um, or tries to mediate that boundary. But of course, planning changes that are, are coming through may suggest a reduced ability for them to do so. Do you have do you have feelings about how the industry needs to come together, or how we need to, or what kind of policies or um, or powers or, or governance that we need to kind of create overall better places so that you're not looking at across the site thinking actually that is damaging what I want to do it's it's difficult because I think in the old days whenever that was you know in the it, I don't know whether that would be like early 1900s or something I guess often councils and local authorities probably had bigger budgets and had more money so often they could be the people who were really creating squares and creating boulevards and creating all this amazing public realm that exists in in some of the cities from that time um and therefore developers or house builders or office builders wherever they were at the time could get on and, and do their bits because the rest of it was being taken care of through taxes and and things and you could create this incredible you know incredible cities which i guess is how things like paris and london and things were, were developed at the time that's difficult now isn't it because the local authorities just do not have the budgets to be spending several million pounds on 
you know, really upgrading public realm um, in, 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 in cities. They just don't have the budgets to do that when they've got other pressures, you know, whether it's schools or libraries or whatever else might be happening. So I think um, what Manchester Council is trying to do um, and is sort of ongoing work really is to try and, where, where there's an area where there's quite a lot of buildings that are all, or sites that are all um, potentially going to be developed because it's an area that might be industrial that's going to be changing to residential or, or, or commercial mixed use. The council is now trying to put in a um, planning policies in place to make sure that everybody has to make their contribution um, to, to the, the spaces in between the buildings. So even though the, the spaces might be owned by the council because they're adopted highway, but they might be kind of, because it's an industrial area, for example, they might be fairly run down. They're trying to come up with policies to make sure all the private sector bodies are all putting their 100 grand, 300 grand, million pound, whatever it is, their share of, 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 of the benefit back into it, which is a really good idea, um, actually, and we, we kind of fully support it, but it's not without its complications, because the problem is that all these schemes tend to come forward at slightly different times. So the first developer is, is up for contributing as whatever it might be, half a million pounds towards the public realm, but of course, if the next one's not going to come along for two years, where does the money go? So that there are a lot of, it, it's not a straightforward thing. It would be much better if local authorities could do it and then get the money from the developers as part of uh, 106. And I wonder whether that will end, that will be where it ends up. But I, th- I think as a principle, I think it's a good idea. So it's kind of, at the moment, it's kind of outside of Manchester. It's outside of the section 106, so the usual section 106 type um, arrangements. This is really something that they're trying to just encourage different landowners to do. And they're trying to um, restrict planning because they'll bring in a, a strategic planning framework to say until you've until you've all got together and agreed you're going to do this we're not going to grant planning in that area so whilst on one hand it's a bit frustrating because it can hold you back on the other hand i do think it's probably quite a good way of actually making sure that people are taking responsibility for those ultimately for those areas outside of the sites um, but it is challenging i think i think there's also kind of an you know we an English tradition of, um, you know, philanthropy and property being together. It's often a little bit self-interested, but you've got things like Bourneville or, the, you know, Cadbury's um, visions. You've got um, you've got the great estates in London that created many of the of the green spaces um, and the squares and the garden squares and lots of plantings too. So I think it's an interesting thing to think. You know, how do we create this this new kind of balanced role you know where it's you know or maybe a more evenly spread role and how that how that emerges over time you know and whether it's just up to individual com- companies to to do that and whether the rent race for rent or the move to kind of rental is really going to drive that quality or not i mean do you have a sense um uh that that incentive to create better places that is perhaps encouraged by you know a kind of more transient you know, buyer, uh, because they're kind of a renting community. Do you think that that is going to um, continue to push for quality or is this kind of um, shortage of affordable places uh, going to continue to to create some areas of very low value? Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a crystal ball? <laughs> Sadly not, but I am quite a fan of sort of market forces and I do think, to some extent, the, the problem, say, again, I talk about Manchester because it's a city we know well, but the problem in Manchester being that there's been a massive lack of homes full stop until fairly recently. I mean, it's only really in the last probably seven years or so that you've actually seen this sort of boom in city centre uh, living uh, coming forward. So, um, and when there's a massive shortage, it allows developers and builders to perhaps get away with building to the lowest common denominator. 
what I think is happening now, which is quite interesting in Manchester, because there's a lot of supply coming forward, because Manchester has been very, very successful at attracting development through the, I think, through the encouragement of the council. I think the more progressive developers are taking this wider view, really, which is if you just build something that's straight up and down from the back of pavement and all you're worrying about is your building, it might look great on a spreadsheet, but it'll probably rent or it'll probably sell for less money than it would do actually if you took a slightly uh, bigger view of it and you did try and think about creating a, a pocket garden or trying to you know contribution towards upgrading the road infrastructure around the site um so I, I think the more progressive developers are getting that and if you look at things like or developers like you and i at mayfield who've got a huge site down there but they're going to create a great big park there which arguably they could probably try and get away or they probably could have tried to go away and do that just filling it you know in a master plan just absolutely packing it full of millions and millions and millions of square foot of commercial space but i think they've seen the benefit if they're going to try and create something in that location which is sort of just outside the city center at the moment if they're trying to going to grow the city center they need to do something more and i think they've got the exactly the right idea which is base it all around manchester's first park really that's been built presumably for 100 or so years um and it's a, it's a big old project, that, and it'll take quite a long time to, to come off because of the sheer size of it. But I think they are taking responsibility for really trying to create a place uh, there, which they probably didn't have to. And if that was if that had been a different developer winning it um, and, and developing it, maybe they wouldn't have had that approach to it. So I think they've done well, really, to, um, to really keep with that vision that they set off with several years ago. And I think Manchester as a city is quite blessed in a way. It has some quite good developers, obviously us, Captain Centric, but it's also got... Urban Splash and the Trafford Estates. You and I obviously operate here. Argent have done things in here. Allied London have done spinning fields. So I think we've been quite blessed, really, with some quite quite sort of interesting developers and and funds. And I think with guidance from the council as well, who've always been very sort of pro development, but pro good development. I think Manchester's really been able to benefit from that um, and try and get better architecture and better spaces um, and make the most of what it's got. I think. We're seeing in the papers uh, reports of a kind of London exodus um, and a sense that COVID might change our engagement or our relationship to working in city centres. What are you seeing in, in Manchester? And, you know, are you anticipating um, with the, you know, we're currently in a national lockdown, but are you anticipating with the rollout of the vaccine a return to a kind of normal there? Or do you think there might be a rebalancing between London and other cities or um, or Manchester just kind of continuing on its trajectory? Gosh, difficult to know, isn't it? My, my, my gut feel is that um, things will return to some level of normality. I do think there's probably a a long-term shift in the way people work to some extent. I do think there's going to be an increase in, without a doubt, in flexible working. So the idea of everybody going in five days a week perhaps is a, is a thing of the past for some time anyway, because I do think companies, me included, are actually realise now that your staff can actually work really well when they're, you know, um, not sat in front of you as well. So I think I think we've all, anyone who's like a boss of a company has kind of realised actually maybe they have been a little bit draconian in their, in their sort of views on, on working practices. So um, I think that's been a very positive thing. And I think people will come back because there's an element of boredom as well. Everyone's a little bit bored at the moment. And I do think once things return, I think people will soon remember the beauty of you know, working in a, in, a, in a city centre where you go out afterwards, if you're in your 20s, you go out on a Thursday night after work and you meet with all your friends who are surveyors or architects or accountants, whatever they might be. Um, so I don't, I think that aspect of it will absolutely come back. I think we've, I don't think we're going to become like a nation of sort of hermits or sat in our living rooms or dining rooms at home on a, on a laptop. So 
Um, but I think it might come back a little bit differently. But I think what I think some positives will come out of it as well, which is things like um, when the lockdown eased in Manchester in the summer, which wasn't for many weeks actually, because it soon went back into a higher tier. But when it did um, relax, all those um, streets in the northern quarter of Manchester, which are the sort of quirky old sort of three, four story um, old buildings, which were sort of built on the back of the textile industry, which has got a lot of, for people who don't know, it's got a lot of um, independent bars, independent retailers. It's a real kind of indie type place. But because obviously people weren't allowed to drink it, uh, drink inside bars, uh, the council uh, very uh, progressively really decided to stop up a lot of the streets on temporary stopping up orders. So all the bars and restaurants could bring chairs and tables and heaters and things outside. And actually it made it, made it into a really good part of the city because it had a real kind of European feel to it, which I wouldn't say Manchester is famous for its European feel particularly, but it gave it, um, it gave this really kind of European feel where everybody was outside. And, you know, I know despite Manchester's reputation, but it doesn't rain all, all the time, actually. So it was absolutely brilliant. And I reckon if the city can kind of, can keep that up and, and if the city council can kind of keep that sort of attitude as well, which I think it will do, I think, funnily enough, the city might end up better as a result, as a more exciting a more exciting place, uh, which then will, of course, attract people to come and want to live in the city centre again, uh, which I don't think is particularly diminished, really, anyway. Do you have a sense of um, cars? I mean, Manchester has been proactive in terms of putting in cycling infrastructure. Is that something that you want to see continue? Yeah, and, and we've um, and it's changing very fast. When we started Crusader Mill, which is a redevelopment in an area called Piccadilly East, which is just behind Piccadilly Station, sort of, so it's in the city centre, because it's an old mill building, it didn't have any space for car parking other than the central courtyard, which probably would fit, I don't know, 50, 60 cars in there, which I think if this had been, if it had been developed back in the uh, 80s or 90s, that would have become a car park in the centre of the mill, no doubt. But actually, we didn't want a penny car park, and we wanted to make that into a, into a residence garden, which is what we're doing at the moment, so that finishes in a couple of months' time, actually. Um, but when we broached that with planners, there was a little bit of pushback initially because we weren't providing any car parking. But our argument was it's literally within 150, probably 100 metres of Piccadilly Station. There's a tram line going past it. Um, you can walk anywhere in the city, really, within 10, 15 minutes. So um, we said, well, the trouble is if we put car parking, it's kind of going to ruin the scheme. And actually, people are going to be slowly moving away from cars. And we haven't had any, I wouldn't say, any lack of appetite from buyers because it doesn't have car parking in it. Because I think... There is a sea change in that as well, which is if you're a relatively, you know, youngish person, you graduate wanting to work in work in Manchester and live in Manchester, you probably don't necessarily want to buy a car anymore because it's quite an overhead. You probably want to spend your money going out. And actually, there's so many car clubs around. You can you can go and join a car club and get a car at the weekend if you want it, which actually over over the course of a year will cost you a lot less than owning a car and finance and MOTs and servicing and changing tyres and all those kind of things. So I think there is a sort of cheap sea change in that. And I think that's happening more and more. Again, at campus, we've only got about 55 or so car parking spaces in 550 apartments. Um, and we only really did that because we developed the plans four, five, six years ago. I think if we were doing it now, we probably wouldn't even bother with, with those spaces because I don't, I don't think they're going to really be needed, funnily enough. There's car parks around in the city that are sort of not fully occupied now because... Um, so many people live in the city centre, they don't want a car. So, And again, that's another thing that will, I think is going to make cities very, very attractive for the future and hopefully will then help cities recover post-pandemic. Do you have a feeling going forward, and you know, maybe you want to discuss your approach so far to the mix of uses and to the kinds of mixes that make for better places? 
Um, we well, we started off. Capital Centric started off as commercial developers, and so my background and Tim's background was really commercial development. Albeit we've both done some residential development in, in the past as well. But so residential development in Manchester is actually a fairly new thing. I mean, it literally is in the last, as I say, the last six or seven years, really, that everyone's start to want to live in the city centre. It was something like 20 years ago, 25 years, I think there were only 3,000 people living in the city and there must be, I don't know, 70 or 80,000 people living in the city now. So that's an incredible change. And I think that's that's also then going to be the catalyst, um, I think, for all the other towns as well. So whilst it's obvious in places like Manchester or Leeds or Liverpool that, you know, city living, actually all those smaller towns like the Stockports and the um, Oldhams and the... Huddersfields and the Wakefields, all the rest of it. As retail starts to drop off, and obviously that's been accelerated by the pandemic and the lockdown, hasn't it? With it, you know, I mean, it was it was dying anyway, clearly because of the internet. But it, this has just accelerated massively. In my opinion, the way to really improve these towns is to get people living back in them. And those towns don't yet have a, a lot have a lot of town centre living in them. The only town centre living they tend to get tends to be sort of. Um, social housing type thing every now and again they'll get a social housing block but they don't tend to get much sort of better quality private sector development in them and I think that's the real key to get their mix uh, right within those towns because there's going to be less demand for retail my view is the more you can get people living in those towns like Stockport or, or Rochdale or whatever I think you'll you'll massively increase the footfall so the remaining retail will end up actually end up being quite good quality because there's going to be a lot of people for less square footage of shops and at the moment the balance is kind of wrong isn't it there's not enough people there for too much square footage of shops and that's got to change so towns that are really looking at that now i think are the ones are going to really prosper over the next five or ten years um because it takes some courage i think from some of those towns or some of those local authorities as well because they're going to have to get involved i don't think they can just leave it to uh, the private sector because often the value and cost equation isn't in the right balance yet for private sector to come into some of those some of those towns so those, those local authorities need to get in involved and they need to start using the methods that are available to them whether it's cpo or whether it's um using um borrowing uh, abilities they've got from the government um pwlb borrowing which means they can borrow very cheaply they've got to get involved in it and i think the ones who do are the ones who are going to look back in five years time i think oh thank god we did that because actually we've now got a town center that's thriving again um and that's going to be really important over the next few years there's a lot of emphasis on attracting young people and attracting tech. Do you think that people are missing a trick in terms of an, attracting an older demographic into the city centre? Yeah, and at the moment, there's very few developments that I'm aware of which are deliberately aimed at attracting um, an older demographic. And we've thought about that a few times on ours. We haven't done it yet, actually, um, because it's quite difficult to kind of completely categorize your new development as being purely aimed at older people because you might get that completely wrong <laughs> and who knows but um I, I do think that's going to be again a, a bit of a change but that's going to be about getting quality and getting larger apartments because probably if you um if you're in your 50s or your 60s and i can say that because i'm in my 50s um you probably don't want to go back to living in a you know, a two-bedroom flat that's built to bare minimum standards, you know, bare minimum, so you can hardly walk around your bed. In all honesty, you're going to want to live somewhere a bit bigger. So I guess that that will evolve as well as the sort of dynamic change in the values, uh, the values change. Um, but I think that's, to be successful, I think a city has to attract all sorts of different people. It can't all be aimed at graduates. It can't all be aimed at social housing. It can't all be aimed at old people. It's got to have a complete mix, hasn't it? And that's got to somehow try and grow organically as well, I think. 
And I always think there's this kind of, you know, what's a flat look like if you have teenagers? I mean, they might love you moving to the city center, but they're not going to want to squeeze into a two bed. But the, the, the difficulty is, I think, there is still a viability issue with building bigger apartments because um, if you build a, a 500 square foot apartment and you, you might be able to sell it for 400 pound a square foot, say, uh, in Manchester, if you build a thousand square foot apartment, you probably only sell it for 350 pound a square foot. So overall, it becomes quite challenging to actually develop, uh, to, to, to justify being able to do it. And it's, it's not... It's not greed from a developer just wanting to make more money. It's 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 literally it's black or white as to whether it, it even stacks up financially for them to do it. So it's it's genuinely. Um, I know people don't tend to have sympathy for developers, but it's genuinely not. It's not just because the developer wants to maximise his profit. It's simply that it won't it won't work to do it another way. So that that is one of the challenges uh, and one of the beauties of what we do at Captain Century because we often develop. And not always, but about 50% of them are existing buildings, so we're developing old mills. The great thing about those is they do tend to be bigger because we're often really, the size of the apartment is not governed by by us. It's really by the position of the windows that we've got in the existing building, like in a big old mill. And they often, for some reason, end up being quite a bit bigger. So Crusader Mill Apartments, I think, are about 50% bigger than the sort of the Manchester Design Guide as the minimum size of apartments. So we have to make that work. However we do, we have to make that work. And also I suppose that's then reflected in what we pay for the thing in the first place. So it can work, but it, it's, um, it is challenging actually. But the beauty is if you can make it work, you've got a product really that's fairly unique in the city, um, such as that, because no one else can really afford to do apartments of that size. Um, and we've managed to do it, which is great. Do you have words for people looking at their existing stock to encourage them to come up with creative reuses? Do you have inspiration or do you have, I don't know, maybe a, a trick for them to kind of see the value of what they've got? Um, it, it's it's difficult. I think it depends who owns it. A, a part of the trouble is that often land and old buildings are owned and they've been owned for a long time by a family because it was a different use. It might be a textile use or whatever originally. And the, the, one of the issues is when they bring that to the market, and they get lots of bids in what has been a very hot market over the past few years, inevitably, sort of by definition, the person who buys it has probably paid too much for it because they've paid more than everybody else. So it, the, the difficulty is from a de- development point of view, you, you've almost by definition paid too much for it to, to buy it because you won the bid. So you know, if you haven't paid as much as anyone else, someone else would have won it. And you're, you're sort of on the back foot from when you start then and trying to make the thing um, actually, actually made money. So it's it's very difficult to see what what the tricks are. It, it all it, ultimately it needs a good dose of um, economic growth to make these things work. And often you bid. For, I mean, when we bid for campus, we felt we, we thought we paid too much for it, really, because this was back in 2014. And we because we won it, we always thought, oh my god, we must have. That's the worst thing in the world. We've won that because we've obviously paid more than everyone else bid, which we obviously we have. But but because I think because there's a wider strategy in Manchester, which was all to do with economic growth and bringing in companies and bringing in jobs and retaining graduates, it sort of doesn't matter too much because that growth sort of um, overtakes any overpayment that you, you might have had to make, you know, quite quickly, really. So that's why I think the private sector always want to really invest in towns and cities where you've got a really strong public sector because without the public sector doing their bit, you have kind of got a, um, you've got a, vi- a viability problem, really. And that's really, I think, why so much emphasis has been on some of these some of these cities and you know it applies to Birmingham places as well um because it's 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 innate this it's it's ultimately it's about creating jobs really and I think Manchester is 
created and attracted so many companies over the past two or three years. It's been absolutely staggering from Amazon to GCHQ to the Hook Group, Talk Talk. There's all these, and, and, and they're not call center jobs like in the old days, which were kind of quite low. These are all proper tech jobs and they're all the proper, you know, proper jobs created, you know, paying proper salaries and creating wealth. So that's really what I think has enabled the city to expand as much as it has done, which then enables developers to put more money back into public realm and into spaces. And that's really what the, a lot of the towns as well need to try and attract as well. They've got to get more people in there and they've got to attract employers uh, to go there. And they need to be in partnership. I think that just leaves me to thank you very much for talking to us today about all of these exciting things happening in, in Manchester and um, a really uplifting look ahead beyond our current lockdown. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. So Martha, I want to welcome you to the Developer Podcast, and I'm going to start this conversation the way we usually do. I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about uh, yourself and a little bit about what, what you do. Thanks so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, as, as you know, I've always been involved in the field of the built environment from different perspectives. Right now, my role, my most important role is as Dean at IE School of Architecture and Design here in Madrid and Segovia. And it's an international school. Uh, we have faculty and students from all over the world. And for me to be involved in academia, especially this unique institution that tries to connect with the real world is really a pleasure. Prior to this, of course, um, I've been working for many years with the Pritzker Prize organization. I've also been a curator, a writer, and just a lover of architecture, design, and the built environment, and especially cities. I have been following IE University and kind of your your work at IE for a few years. And I think it's it's really interesting um, that you were doing this blended learning the rest the, before the rest of us had kind of gone into this world of, of hybrid between the digital and the online. Your part-time global online MBA programs were ranked first in the world by QS 2020, second in the world by the Financial Times. You were doing this before... Um, before we, we even knew about it. And the world is catching up to you. So what, what are the advantages that you see in professionals undertaking this blended learning in an online university? And what have you learned, you know, being involved in this for the last few years about the advantages of, of that approach? Yeah, whoever would have thought that COVID would have changed our whole world so quickly and so much and made technology our primary tool for communication. And you're right, Christine, um, IE Business School, which is probably more than 40 years old, they were really pioneers in online education. Of course, we have many, many face-to-face -face programs, but they began this as a way to serve especially professionals and the international community that wasn't able to travel uh, for and leave their jobs or their home or their families for a whole year. In the field of architecture, because our school is 12 years old, and I always like to say we're the daughter of a business school, now there are five schools within the university, but we too began looking at innovative pedagogical methods several years ago. And what we did is we would have most of our um, undergraduate programs face-to-face, -face, but we thought the internship component 
the ability to be in the real world and understand how professionals in different fields work is important for our students. In order to do that, we uh, implemented online learning for part of the undergraduate programs. We were able to perfect things, even design studio online. We experimented a lot, lots of uh, trial and error. We also made a MOOC, one of the first MOOCs, or I believe the first MOOC about the architectural design process called Making Architecture. And what, what we saw is that um, just as architectural offices, other types of companies, of course, developers, banks, are using technology effectively, why couldn't we do it in education? And I think we all realize, especially today, our world is blended. There's not a hard line between online and offline. And I think, of course, there are techniques. There's a lot you have to learn about communication, about attention span, about software tools. Um, but all of that is are really tools of the trade and can be helpful in education and in the professional sphere. You mentioned this real world approach. And also, I know you talk about having a holistic approach. Uh, and this international uh, and you know global perspective. Why is that important in real estate and in, and in architecture right now? I think if we look at the trajectory of real estate companies, um, we can see a couple of things. One, an increased professionalization of what they do, much more data-based, much more scientifically looking at trends, trying to understand many aspects of the real estate market, of the world, of the sector. So that, that's one thing. Um, the second thing I think we see in real estate companies, uh, especially develop, development companies, is trying to expand their services rather than concentrating on just leasing or development or investment, there's an idea to be sort of one-stop shopping that the different facets of the sector complement each other and therefore they have expanded in their roles. Without a doubt, things are international, we're not local. So those three, three reasons, international in, is, is really what characterizes the field, professionalization, and then expanded services. And in order to do that, you really have to understand not only the context, you have to understand deeply your field, but you have to be able to talk with multiple stakeholders. And I think at, at, at IE School of Architecture and Design, uh, it's a school of architecture and design, but we're so fortunate to have as you mentioned, the business school, law school, a school of human science and technology, and also a school of public affairs that deals with policy. And so all of these together can provide that outlook on the environment. Uh, and then in our courses, we dig deep. Um, our students learn from each other. They learn from our professors. They learn from um, the context, the cities we're in, and the ones we visit. So I think this holistic approach has many ramifications in the academic world. And um, 
I, I find it I find it exciting. I find it it's a learning experience. Each day you find a new aspect to delve into. So what kind of a professional do you, would you see um, benefiting from undertaking the part-time global masters in real estate development? What, what we've done in this program, um, our global master in real estate development, uh, it, it has a backdrop of the idea that developers are city makers. So they need to understand the development process. They need to understand investment, finance, uh, construction, all of that. But they also uh, could benefit by understanding the interface with the city and how, um, how, the, how real estate projects impact a city and how a city can, in, can impact real estate projects. The, the Global Master is a part-time program. So that means that people can work, they continue to live in their home country if that's what they want. And they connect on um, Saturday afternoon, Saturday afternoon in Europe. It would be Saturday morning in North and South America. And it would be later in the evening uh, to the east of us in, in, in Asia. It, it allows people to continue with their life, but to dig deep and, 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 and gain more skills and also gain a larger perspective. This program is, is for people who are probably five to 10 years experience and they want to either progress in their own professional career or maybe they wanna do a sideways shift and get out of one field that they're in and go into an adjacent field. And they would be the perfect candidates for this. Can you tell me a little bit about the residential and immersion weeks? Cause I know you have um, a certain course structure. So maybe talking through uh, your learning in your own country, but then there is a moment where you 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 actually do a face to face. So absolutely, absolutely. The first two weeks we all get together uh, here in Madrid, and the purpose of that is to get to know each other and to realize the great strengths and different, um, the, the different outlooks that we have and how we can complement each other throughout the 15-month the course. Those first two weeks also are the more intense classes that have to do with workshops, with understanding um, different aspects, not only of real estate, but of presentation, working with clients, negotiation, things where face-to-face um, -face contact and longer sessions, longer periods of the day are enjoyable and, and can be uh, undertaken in a face-to-face -face way. It's also a chance to get to know some of the services of IE, to be in close contact with our careers department or our library, and just to, to really um, set, the, set the base uh, or the foundation so that the rest of the course will go well. We then have a week, uh, we've planned a week study trip together. And this uh, week study trip is planned for Mexico City, which is a totally different environment than Madrid. It has different uh, types of approaches and problems. And that's a series of visits to different types of companies, of offices, of sites, um, 
and, and understanding how to analyze a context and how to uh, adjust the questions for different places in the world. Then we go back online and finally we finish the presentation of the capstone projects, which is the culminating sort of thesis group project with two more weeks in Madrid at the end of the period. So it's a chance, it's a chance to get to know how to communicate, to get together, to form the foundation, go off on your own, get back together in a unique setting, go off on your own, and then come back for the capstone and of course graduation and our celebration at the end. You have an agreement with C40 Reinventing Cities and what I was wondering what that meant for your students and also you know how does tackling climate change feature in the program is that something um, embedded in it or is it something that you look at on the side? Um, th those are really good questions. Um, sustainability is one of the values of our whole institution. And we try to see sustainability broadly. It has to do with the built environment. It also has to do with building community, our individual behaviors, sustainability in, in businesses. Um, and in, in our case, in the Global Master in Real Estate Development, um, sustainability is one of the aspects that is woven into almost all of the subjects. I think nowadays we can't, we, we can't talk about the world without mentioning COVID and the changes it's brought. Well, likewise, we can't really talk about the world unless we understand that global warming is a reality and it does affect us, it affects our businesses, it affects our professional activity. So the agreement that we signed with C40, we recognize that this is an organization, a worldwide organization like us. They have a wealth of knowledge that they've gathered because of their close relationship with cities, the way they approach projects and support cities as they try to develop entrepreneurial holistic projects uh, for their cities is, is really an example. And they've offered to share with us their database, they've offered to share their contacts, and they've offered to help uh, be formed part of the final jury for the capstone. So we'll benefit from not only their information, but their knowledge. And again, it's a real world project or real world projects that we do in an academic setting to heighten learning and heighten the experience. So I think that just uh, leads me to ask you, you know, what do people do if they want to find out more? And are there any deadlines they need to be aware of that are coming up? We, we have a rolling admissions uh, program. So I would say they're not, I can't give you a hard and fast deadline. On the other hand, uh, yes, the program will start in April of this year. So it's better to connect to our website at IE School of Architecture and Design. There's a brochure, there's a lot of information and someone, if you'd like to receive more information or a call, it's very, very easy to do that. And I might also mention, Christine, that we're very supportive of women in real estate. We think that it's a field where there are still obstacles, sometimes real and sometimes imagined, but we're ready to do our part. So we do have special scholarships uh, for women 
So I would encourage them to apply soon because uh, the those, although they also don't have uh, hard and fast deadlines, there is fierce competition and we definitely would like them to come to our program and not another master. So um, I look forward to welcoming students and Christine, I look forward to welcoming you as I hope uh, a guest speaker in one of our master classes. It, it, uh, it's an exciting time for real estate and it's an exciting time for education. Absolutely, I accept. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the developer UK and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk.